It's Jawbone. Yeah, we met. That's not his real name. What's his real name? Skin Taker. Skin Taker. He's not really my friend. He's part of me. He keeps me company. He'll keep you company too. Hello, and welcome to Cut to Black, a podcast about the ways in which we experience television. I'm film critic and horror author Gretchen Felker Martin, and with me tonight is my co host, Shanti Collins, television critic and author of Pain Don't Hurt Meditations on Roadhouse. And tonight we're going to be talking about the monsters from Channel Zero. Which is an incredible show that you all should watch. I just want to say that up front. It absolutely is. And I feel like I say that every time the show comes up anywhere in my life. Um, I've, I proselytize for this, for this thing. Absolutely. Um, There's really nothing, nothing like it. Yeah. And I do so mostly because I myself slept on it. You know. Yeah, me too. Me too. I you know, I saw Fool That I Was, I saw the sci-fi channel logo and it just went on with my life. Yep, pretty much the same. Sci-fi channel, creepy pasta. I was like, ah, I'm good. Yeah. But then I caught up with it after all four seasons had been had completed, and I felt like a complete idiot that I missed out on this stuff while it was going on. Because it's First of all, it's one of the only television shows to ever succeed at being scary week to mm-hmm. week. Yep. Yeah, um, it's it's legit frightening from the start of the first season and then it just it just keeps improving upon itself. It's in terms of being frightening, it's really yeah. remarkable. It really really is. Um there's an incredible facility for tension and the short seasons help, but there are plenty of shows with, with short seasons that deal in horror subject matter that never manage to be scary at all. That's very true. Even, even shows that, that both of us really like, like Hannibal. Yeah. Hannibal is gross. Yeah. Uh, and but it's, it's never scary. No, that's true. That's true. There, there's no, there's no, um, Nothing is going to make you jump in Hannibal. It's not what it's for. And and yeah. Hannibal's, Hannibal's a good show to bring up because the creator of Channel Zero, Nick Antosca, that was his previous credit. Right, right, right. He was, um, he did something on that with uh, lighting or cinematography. I think he was a writer. Oh, was he? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I do know that Channel Zero had several Hannibal staffers on it, which is part of why it looked so good. Mm -hmm. Um, And each season, it should be said, has a different director. So it's like effectively like a series of four films. Yeah. With each with a kind of a singular vision behind it. And that's impressive too. Uh, The only other show I can think of, I mean, I'm sure there's others that I'm just missing, but it reminds me a lot of American Crime Story and how each yes. season has a new showrunner, you know, a new writer or writing team. Like it's effectively, a, you know, 
it's just a really good anthology. It's just really solidly constructed. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch anthology television make a comeback and immediately sport so many really top flight shows. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the series that you could probably argue most easily started the trend, True Detective, is uneven, but definitely iconic and sometimes great. And then there's Fargo, and then there's this, and even though the terror whiffed after the first season, the first season is probably the best thing made in the last decade. Um, but the monsters on this show are on such a completely different level from almost anything else in any medium right now. I mean, I think in, in some ways horror is at, at a bit of a low ebb with monster design at the moment. Mm. There hasn't been something new and iconic on the big screen to actually look at in a while. I mean, if you go back to um, It Follows, which is, is the most recent creature feature that I can think of, there's not actually a monster to look at. And that's not a a fault with the film, but there's just, there's very little of it on screen right now. It's expensive to make the effects to make it look good are no longer terribly accessible to directors. um, And they're very time intensive and expensive. It just isn't in vogue right now at all. No, I, I suppose I would cite the Babadook. But the Babadook is effectively just Lon Chaney in London After Midnight. Like, Yeah, I, I actually think that if you slow the Babadook down to the point where you get to look at the Babadook, it's not <laughs> scary. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, the biggest scare in that movie for me is is the face, of which oh, we've talked about, is the face oh, the of face the mother in the, in the window. Right. During, during the news report. God, it's just the worst thing. Yeah. Just the worst. Channel Zero is about monsters, and it really just continuously doubles down on that. It's like more about monsters as you go. Yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, The last season, in fact, just continually pulls new monsters out of its ass. Literally. (laughs) Yes, yep. Um, But in the first season, you get what is probably the show's most iconic monster, the Tooth Child. Which... I think every time I've posted a picture of this, I've had at least two or three dozen responses that are like, I hate this. I don't like looking at this. This makes me upset. And it's a really horrible fucking thing to look at. It is. It's very difficult to look at, especially it, if you have like certain phobias, like, uh, yeah. you know, like uh, of growths or trypophobia. Um, it's, it's, which I do. It's, it's unpleasant to endure th- that thing. Um, I mean, God, it's, it's just, it's incredible. And I I think you had just sent to me before we started recording that the original concept for the monster comes from Greg Nicotero, who did the, the creature design for the walking dead, which say what you will about that show. And I've said plenty, the zombies look good. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Overshadowed by the show being a, just an endless, 
sort of low quality, low effort, fascist wet dream. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that ended up taking up too much of Nicotero's time and he sold Antosca, Nick Antosca, the concept art uh, for, for the, a dollar. For the princely sum of one dollar. <laughs> yes. Um, and then it was it was redone and built by Francois Dejeuner. And I I mean I've seen a little bit of making making of stuff. And the fact that it's articulated at all is one of the most incredible effects achievements I've seen on TV. Mm. Like to make this thing move when it's literally covered in real and prosthetic teeth that are all going to be grinding against each other. It's a nightmare. I don't even like thinking about it moving. No, it's very bad. Um, (laughs) And... I think what really sells it on top of, you know, work that would be stellar on its own in the visual field is that the sound design is also very, very bad. Yes. Um, By which I mean, it's incredible, but, but terrible to experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And symbolically, this show's monsters are extremely rich. And this is one of my favorites because it's, it's fairly, it's right there, but the subject matter of the season uh, the season is is underplayed enough that it it doesn't feel ridiculous. You know, this is a monster made out of children's teeth cobbled together by a little boy who never got to grow up and is incapable of moving on from that. It makes perfect sense for the story and for that character. Um, But not so much sense that you can anticipate where it's headed or why it exists, you know, like once it's explained, you're like, now I get it, but it doesn't, it doesn't tip its hand at all. No, when it appears, it's completely inexplicable and terrifying. Right. Just this, this clicking, twitching monstrosity. Yeah. Um, but my favorite monster, probably in the entire series, is the first season's other monstrosity, the Skin Taker. And I don't know if any of our listeners are familiar with Olivier de Sagazan, who is a French performance artist, um but he does these routines where he smears his face and body in different substances and then will like mutilate the new skin surfaces that he creates with those substances. Like he'll cover himself in clay and then carve a second face into the clay and then rip it apart. Um, And he plays this guy, the skin taker, this force. And it turns out that if you just let this dude do what he wants in front of the camera, it's fucking horrible. (laughs) I mean, it, it feels like such an obvious thing in retrospect. Like, get an artist whose work you respect, whose work you find frightening or upsetting, and let him be the monster in your show. Yeah. But it's amazing to me. I mean, I suppose the budget was just so low that they were allowed to do whatever they wanted. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah. Because I mean, it seems like the kind of thing that would get committed to death otherwise, you know? Absolutely. You know, well, we actually need a 
gray scaly lizard monster or something like mm-hmm. um, cgi yeah give us something that looks like a stranger things monster or a joss whedon vampire those are your choices those are the the twin poles of of bad monster design in modern film mm-hmm. um it always makes me think of of ridley scott seeking out hr geiger to make the alien right which is the move that makes the movie created a whole franchise yeah i mean even if you want to look at the idea as cynically as possible that was a tremendously lucrative decision yep who can even count the the amount of money made in merchandising the alien or the countless knockoffs right Um, and there's a really, really personal quality to the work that Desagazana is doing on screen. There is just this tremendous sense of physical immediacy. And also he's like this specter of self-harm in a way that most horror won't even touch. I mean, he, literally beats his head to pieces against a wall. He claws and stabs at his own face. And it's, it's like this, he's this inexpressible thing. It's God. It's just, there's nothing like it on TV. Yeah. And it works too, because he is the real version of these also frightening puppet versions of this character and other characters in this television show candle cove that um spoiler alert if you don't want to find out what candle cove is about uh, skip forward about 15 seconds but it's a show that's effectively broadcast from the mind of a psychic child and there's these sort of creepy puppet versions of the skin taker and and various other characters on the show that are also creepy to look at in that way that outdated children's media can be creepy and under the surface, the 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 Desagazan version is the real version of it, and it kind of works because of as you said, like peeling apart the layers and taking things apart. Like it it works with the what the story is. Absolutely, there's a a terrifying moment where he actually appears in sort of this distorted version of the puppet version's costume. Mm-hmm that it is just fucking chilling because it bridges that gap between the children's show and the very adult terror of, of this entity. And, you know, I think to me, he represents Eddie's unrealized adulthood. Mm. He's this powerful, destructive force that is all potential and, and no coherence. He's never been given a chance to take a form. And so he is just thrashing around in a void. Burning and melting and right. Yeah. Constantly destroying himself. Yeah. I guess like whenever I watch the season, I'm, I feel blown away all over again that that got put on television. 
And I wish more people would do that. I wish more people would go and find some weird fucking performance artist and, and just let them be the monster. And, and Tosca kept doing this again and again with yeah. the people who, who created the monsters and other various horror effects for the, the show. I mean, like, you know, Guy Madden did stuff for, I think it was, um, I forget which season it was now. Season two, I believe. You know, and he's an avant-garde filmmaker. You can look up his stuff on the Criterion channel. Yeah. And it's like, there he is, doing stuff on the Sci-Fi Network. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. It's like, I would never, I would never ever have heard of that if I hadn't got so interested in the show. Because you, you, like, how are you supposed to advertise that? Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Welcome to episode three of No End House <laughs> featuring Guy Madden. <laughs> <laughs> or another artist who's no stranger to you, Sarah Sitkin. Who yes, that's right. Did the cover art for Manhunt available in 2022. Ah. Um, um, yeah, that's that's one of the big creative coups of, of my career. I was so yeah. excited when they told me that she was going to do the cover. Um, she did these really upsetting sculptures for the No End House season, which is season two. Oof. And they really make an opinion, and excuse me, they really make an impression on you in the brief time that you see them that kind of lingers throughout the whole season. Absolutely. They're, they're these cryptic statues of a group of characters who are going into the titular house. And after this sort of haunted house blackout they're either turned into or replaced by shattered sort of quasi prophetic versions of themselves right it's a really startling uh, effect <laughs> it's very it's very upsetting yeah and i think because we don't spend that long with them it does hang over the rest of the series because you're you're given this glimpse of something that clearly has real power and import and then it's past and it's over and you're you're being subjected to all these new horrors but I mean, at least for me, during every moment of downtime in the rest of the season, it's so easy to to go back to thinking about those broken faces and mm-hmm. those particular ways in which they're arranged, and especially as some of them begin to make sense. Right. I think the channel... Is, Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, which is just fucking awful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think Channel Zero is very good at showing you something just long enough for it to make an impression and then kind of turning away or uh, no end house is kind of full of that stuff uh, or just, or never really explaining necessarily the origin of why things are the way that they are or look the way that they do. Um, and just relying on you to get it or to, in, to grok it is maybe a better word for it. Like yeah. just to feel it in your guts, you know? Um, that season also has the uh, sort of clay golem version of oh my the main God. character's father who died, uh, who committed suicide. And 
um, that reaches out to embrace her, and it's and and does, and it's awful. It's just awful. The first time that I saw that, I my whole body was tense. I was like creeping up the back of the couch. I think that that first episode of No End House is probably the scariest episode of television I've ever seen in my life. Mm. And that moment where she is, the worst part is he's not hurting her. Right. It's just like, it's the worst thing in her life and she's being pressed against it. Like it's a hot griddle, but for emotions. I remember in, um, a really good book, if you care about horror, is The Philosophy of Horror by Noel Carroll. And he tries to define what it means to be, he calls it art horrified, which is different, a different emotion he feels from when you're actually horrified by something real in real life. And and part of it is that the touch of these things, you recoil from the touch of it because it feels in some way corrupt or disgusting or or, or diseased or tainted. And, um, so it's not just, it's not just like the monster's going to eat you. It's like the monster will eat you and that's bad. It's bad to be eaten by that kind of thing. It's not like a lion will eat you, you know? Right. Or, and, or the monster will touch you and you'll never be the same. Right. The, yeah. The sort of an extrapolation of, of the vampire effect. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very much so. Yeah. This will ruin the rest of your life. You you will live in hell after this. And I think that's a through line through almost all the monsters in Channel Zero. I mean, when you think about the tooth child, to get back to that, what you see it do before you really know what it is, is just jam its arm into someone's mouth. Yeah. And it's like, that is awful. I, you know, it's not, it doesn't look like it's hurting anybody. But it's violating. Yes, exactly. It's a violation. Yeah. And in this, it's, it's very much the same with the golem. Yeah. That season, No End House also has one of the only monsters that constant or uh, consciously echoes the prisoner that I've seen. Mm, the orb um, thing. Yeah. The, the succubus or, or whatever you want to call it, which is just this like manifestation of out of control sexuality. That thing is really fascinating. Yeah, I've seen interesting theories about what it means in the context of the show, and um, none of which I really want to get into. I feel like it takes us a little bit far afield. But yeah, and I think the beauty of it is that while it's specific to an interesting character, it's ambiguous enough that the reader will do, or the the viewer will do the work of, of making it specific. Right. Because you have to contemplate why it's haunting this one character and not the others, you know? Exactly. Because it, it is only present and menacing to this one particular character. And I think, again, Channel Zero is good at introducing monsters without fully explaining them and without spoon feeding you like, oh, this is what this is and this is how this works and this is how you get rid of it. And this is what it's vulnerable to. And it doesn't really, it feels much more um, accurately dreamlike. Yeah. Yeah. In so far as there's not, 
there's usually not like a silver bullet kind of scenario where right, you understand a- like what it's vulnerable, you know, how to, how to get rid of it and, and how you become a werewolf and how you get rid of a werewolf and all this kind of business. Like it's, it doesn't really work that way. No, they're, they're monsters. They're not enemies in the sense that there are enemies in a video game or dungeons and dragons. Right. These are not things that you can reason your way past. And that's, I mean, that's what a monster is. It's something that disrupts the fabric of the world that you live in. And that could be as simple as coming through your window and eating you or as complex as entrapping you in a secondary world where your memories are slowly eaten away. Right. Um, but a monster is a, a violation. And once you get into the third season, I would say the monster stuff really kicks into high gear. It sure does. It sure <laughs> I does. mean, there's just way more of them. Yeah, there's a ton in there. Like, I feel like each one kind of is a nod to um, a different kind of horror lineage. You know, there's, Absolutely. there's there's a meat man that feels straight out of Clive Barker, and there's yep. uh, there's like little dwarf evil person that's like the brood, and uh, or from from Don't Look Now. Yes, that too, and there's a, a kind of in what was very in vogue at the time stag imagery there's like a stag god yeah um that has like the inf- the infinite within itself um sort of a, a lovecraft yeah monster as well as a, a nod towards the cosmic vibes and deer imagery of yeah. hannibal and then there's just a smiling murder in a murderer in a suit it looks like something from an al columbia comic or a, or a David Lynch movie. Yeah. With the especially with the way that the season eventually starts playing with like pre-recorded old television imagery. Mhm. And then there's the right monster about Columbia. Um Oh. I I was just uh thinking about my favorite Al Columbia panel which is the figure of Black Fire in normal human shoes coming down the stairs. Right. Um, It's very reminiscent of that. That also reminds me of the first monster that you see in uh, the Candle Cove season, which is the skin taker with his head full of straw and on fire. Um, You just get a split second of it and it hits you like a fucking freight train. Yeah. And then also in the Butcher's Block season, which is season three, um, you have these monsters that represent the main character's incipient uh, mental illness, schizophrenia. And. Oh, those, those bubble headed paper mache things. Yeah. There's there's one that moves like a kind of a spider. And then there's the one that is just like a, a tall skinny person with this enormous head. And again, to get the whole idea of being touched and being tainted by these things, like she's constantly trying to escape them. And I remember this, this one scene where you actually see the hand, kind of reach into the frame and actually touch her. And it's like, no, that's not how it's supposed to work. You're supposed to, you're supposed to get away or be killed. There's not, there's supposed to be an in-between thing where like the monster touches you and it's fine. And like you move on in the story. Like you either kill or be killed. It's not supposed to work that way. Right. But channel zero knows 
that most of the worst things that can happen to you in your life don't kill you. Right. And certainly uh, when, when my mental illness has been most acute, I have felt like, I, I remember when I watched that season and just thought to myself, that's what it feels like. Like, it feels like there's a thing in your mind that you're running from that just keeps coming and you, you can't get away from it and you just don't want it to reach out and grab you. Right. It's a, it's like a PTSD dream, um, mm. which I, I used to have all the time and I, I still have occasionally where you're, you're powerless, your body's made of taffy. You're just sort of this strengthless figure trying futilely to escape whatever's coming after you. And more often than not, when I have one of those dreams, what my pursuer wants is to touch me. Maybe not even sexually, just like to press their body against mine. And it's, it's the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. This show really understands that. Yeah. And deploys it over and over to really strong effect, you know? Yes, absolutely. Um, God, those, those bubblehead monsters are so upsetting. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right. The, the big reason that they're so upsetting is that they're not out to kill her. They're out to become part of her. Right. Which is such a terrible feeling to know that there's something in you that could destroy the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a ticking time bomb. Yeah. And they, they symbolize the disease with the extraction and eventually replacement of a enormous centipede. Yeah. Um, and in the strictest terms, I think you could count all of the peaches as monsters themselves. Right. Yeah. It should be said that I'm sorry, go ahead. Because they're all cannibals. It should be said that this season includes the, uh, peerless monster design that is Rutger Hauer. (laughs) Who's just Rutger Hauer, you know, but it's a real casting coup on the part of the show. It really is. And it was one of his last roles. Yeah. And Um, he's very, very good. He's astonishing. Yeah. I mean, to do that kind of work and what was it? His late seventies or early eighties, whatever it is. He, I mean, I had never seen him do that kind of thing before. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a lot of Wrecker Hauer movies. I've seen him be sexy. I've seen him be kind of like an Ubermensch. I've seen him be a wreck, but to find that like, playful genteel monstrosity is so impressive right because the other predation that's going on in that season is the predation of the rich on the poor right student loans gentrification all of this all of this sort of sublimated cultural cannibalism yeah you know i think maybe the only moment of real catharsis in the season is when Alice attacks and eats a student loans collection agent. <laughs> which is just like a, a, like a, it's a recurring comedy bit. Yeah. Which is great. Like channel, this their third season, excuse me, the butcher's block season uh, is funny in a way that the first two were not. Absolutely. And 
um, you know, funny on purpose and f- effectively, you know, and it, it's just, it's still very frightening. Um, but the, 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 rec- the recurring bit where the, uh, while they're dealing with all this shit, the student loan guy keeps calling, like, that's funny. And it's such a, it's such a wonderful metaphor for what it feels like to live in America right now for people like you and me, like first everything in the world is going to squeeze you constantly. Mm -hmm. Second, there are going to be guys who try to come by and squeeze you extra. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they, they take the lemon back out of the trash and they're like, nah, we can get another half a cup out of this. Yep. Um, and just the inhumanity of that. Right. Cause the guy's affect is not sinister either. You know, he's, he's kind of an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he, he's very much like more a, a Brazil cheerful and different bureaucrat, right? Than, than he is some sort of ghoul. Um, and I love the that moment because first of all, it's a funny joke that you know she eats him, and second, mm-hmm. that suddenly class meets this sort of nouveau riche institution of, of wealth extraction. Um, and that kind of thing can't touch the wealth that the peaches have. Right. There's, there's a, a point at which money means that you can never really be poor again. Even if you become poor. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I mean, fuck. The fucking president of the United States is a guy who's famously gone bankrupt over and over and over again. Right. And it just doesn't matter. He just keeps getting billions of dollars. <laughs> like, Yeah. I mean, it, it, you're a made guy after a certain point. Yep. When you make Someone enough money. Someone else is going to pick up the check. Yep. Yep. And, you know, if it, if you're incapable of it, it's, it's going to be the American taxpayer. Right. Um, but it will happen. There's just, it's just so rich. I hope that's coming across as we discuss the series from season to season. Like, I hope, you know, we've so far we've done the first three. We've talked about Candle Cove. We've talked about No End House. We've talked about Butcher's Block. And I feel like each new season, we're kind of turning over new rocks uh, yeah. of the American psyche or just the human psyche and, or, or both both specific and general, I think it's really effective at dredging up these, the monsters are great and frightening and it's extremely, extremely effective horror filmmaking. I don't want to sell that short at all. You, 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 you probably don't need the metaphorical strength that these images and these creatures and these characters like the peach family have for it to be as fright to, for it to have been very frightening, but you do get it. You get it as like this bonus on top. And that's, I think why, it's one of the reasons why I am so fervent in my devotion to the show and the reason that I keep kind of singing its praises and absolutely stack it up with like the up alongside the canonical prestige TV shows. It belongs there. It does. It, it belongs in the discussion of the, the 20 best shows ever made. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Something that I like about, butcher's block is that it's it's much more 
it feels much more distinctly American than the two previous seasons. You know, it's about this. I, I suppose I'm saying this because it, it mirrors my experience of being American, which is like, mm-hmm. you know, part of the generation that got suckered into massive college debt. Um, and also as someone with like incipient mental illness that got worse and worse in my twenties. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And I also think, you know, having talked to Antosca about this, I have maybe I'll put the link in the in the description of the episode. Why not? Um, I interviewed Antosca after the show had wrapped, but while I was still hoping there was going to be a season five, which effectively you get between the act and brand new cherry flavor, the two series he did afterwards, um, they're affecting and effective in, in much the same way. Yeah. Although they're they're different, also, duh. Um, <laughs> but he, he, you know, we talked about how. Candle Cove and No End House, and then again in season four, The Dream Door, are very suburban horror stories. Yes. And, you know, he he attributed that to spending part of his youth in the suburbs of New Jersey, which are kind of pointedly anonymous places. Yeah. And, you know, The Sopranos minds the same thing with the McMansions that Tony and, and friends live in, you know. Yeah. Um, Butcher's Block was inspired more by the time he spent when he was very young in new Orleans, which is a very specific, very American locale. Yes. And I do feel like that comes through in the set design and, and the, just the location because all this stuff is filmed in Canada. I mean, it should go without saying if you're filming for a low budget on the sci-fi network, you're filming this in Canada. Um, But it, it does feel like you said, it feels really American in whereas those other seasons could take place in Canada and it would work just as well, you know, right. because they're, they're about these universal things like yeah. failure to grow up or grappling with adulthood and then mm-hmm. grief. Yep. And you mentioned the dream door, which is for sure the most thematically ambitious season of the show. Mm. Um, and also one of the most unique things I've seen on TV. Something I love about that season beyond, oh fuck, the monsters are so good. First of all, you have Pretzel Jack, who's played by this astonishing contortionist in really, really strange, affecting, upsetting clown makeup. Um, yeah, it's just kind of off. Um it looks like a child's crayon drawing come to life, like with right. the malproportions and stuff. And, and right. he and looks it, like a cartoon character. Yeah. And it was created for the Troy James is the, is the guy who played the character. And he is also the spider version of the brain monster oh, in butcher's block. And, and, sense. and Tosca was like, I got to work with this dude again. Yeah. So there you have it. Um, but he sort of carries that, that thematic thread from season one of, of the thorny, ugly element of preserving elements of your childhood. Mm -hmm. You know, he's this, this, he's effectively an avatar for the protagonist's chronic mental illness. Yeah. And it's a really, unromantic portrayal of that, which is is something that Antosca does over and over again. 
Um, I should clarify, it's deeply empathetic. What it isn't is is sugarcoated. Right. Being close to this woman can be very destructive, both for her and for the people she loves. Mm-hmm. And to show that honestly and then still arrive at the conclusion that she deserves to love and be loved. It's just a really bold place to take this like dinky little show on the sci-fi channel. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's not like a burn the witch kind of situation where, well, it's her fault somehow that th- this thing got loose and she has to, um, you know, be punished for it or, or, or excise some part of herself to remove it. Like she effectively has to integrate her personality to, to treat it is really right. what, what it feels like, you know? And in, in fact, that's, that's my favorite moment of creature design in the whole season is the baby mm. that, that she spontaneously manifests through her power, which is to bring things into being by effectively wanting them both consciously and subconsciously. And while she's making love with her husband in this really tumultuous part of their relationship, she manifests this infant that I, I can only compare to the baby from a razor head as this sort of icon of it's so vulnerable that it's physically upsetting to look at. Yeah. This limbless, just sort of, little tiny sack of flesh. Right. It's so, so frail that just to touch it is to hurt it. Yeah. That scene is so incredibly moving that she, she takes this thing into her arms and makes peace with the parts of herself that are not, are not pleasant to look at or be around. The things that are just too hard. That's very meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. Then you also have like the crayon monsters. Oh man! All oh, those those little melty guys. Melty, who are, melty guys. Yep. Are like something out of Paper House. Yes. Yeah, Paper House. I came. I keep coming back to that in this season. I think for obvious reasons. Yeah, um, for sure. Another movie about children's art coming to life. And what's the name of the creature that looks like kind of an evil Fred from Scooby-Doo? Who's like the oh, right, like the opposite right. number for Pretzel Jack. You know, like he's kind of like a big brute. Yeah, he has some, it's some silly funny name. Um, something guy. One second. There was a mutant in X-Factor, the Peter David run, who is a big strong guy who he just called Strong Guy, which I always thought was a pretty decent gag. Yeah, that's solid. Yeah. Um, this show is such that like you can easily lose track of the extremely effective monsters that it yeah, has, you know? Absolutely. And, and while you look that up, I'll just say that like kind of my go-to line, and we when we've talked about the show before, like in those episodes of the Boy Leather Audio Hour we did, where we just kind of went through our personal canon, I, it it scared me more. Oh boy. Tall boy, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Tall boy. There you go. Um, 
I was just gonna say this show scared me more in the first scene of the first episode of the first season than entire ostensibly horror shows have scared me period yeah you know Absolutely. like it just it runs circles around this shit like it's you know having oh you know watched castle rock season one or things like that or the terror <laughs> season two it's just like oh brother you know like these things don't even have like a glancing relationship with being actually frightening and that's or the stand jesus the the new version of the stand right let alone american horror story oh my god that's that it's like a tumblr dashboard it's not a heart like come on please um not a particularly well curated tumblr dashboard either it's it's just lazy television yeah um and and you're you're right that the horror is an aesthetic element yeah not a substantive one it's spooky you know, yes. like, which I think as spooky has become more of a thing, like it's spooky season. I've heard that said like a million times this year. I don't know if I've ever heard it said, but I've used it because it's effective. Like people know what you're talking about, you know, um, in a piece is, where I re- is, it's a nightmare before Christmas core. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's funny. Cause I remember when I was a part of the, the horror blogosphere years ago, um, when I ha- I got a job in the comics industry and had to stop blogging about comics, which is what I was primarily doing. So I kind of switched over to horror. And um, there was this writer, Kurt Purcell, who was really trying to pinpoint like, um, do you- there's stuff that's recognizably horror-ish, like Frankenberry. Yeah. Um, y- you know, or the Monster Mash. That's not supposed to be scary, but it still has some kind of relationship to horror. It's still a monster. It's still supposed to like, you know, it's not like a Muppet monster. It's like a, it's still a monster recognizably. So it's just not supposed to scare you. What is that? And that's spooky season has given us a word for it. And I feel like, and that's perfectly fine. You know, I mean, it's fine. It's fine for October to be spooky season. It's, it's fine. It doesn't bother me. Um, but it bothers me when that's the that's the highest that your show that is supposed to be a horror show reaches for. Like absolutely, and just Channel Zero just fucking swung for the fences over and over and over and over and over again. Like it never stopped. No, it it, it, it just it hardly ever missed either. Yep. It, it just man, it, 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 the hit to miss ratio is just. It's like a C-3PO odds, you know, like it's, it's really like it's, it's the, and I think that's one of the things that most impressed me when I first watched it, you know, like I said earlier, like it just kept getting scarier and scarier and it's, you feel like that shouldn't be possible. Right. You should get, you should get more and more like inured to it. Inured to it. Yeah. Or, or that it'll simply have shot its wad after a certain point. And, you know, the the most effective imagery will have been used up and then you just kind of coast for a while. And it never did that. No, not even a little. Like that thing where I think it's tall boy who like destroys a car behind a school bus. Right. Jesus. Like that's the, that's great and scary and like. Like a like a vivid kind of nightmare thing. If you've ever, because I it reminded me in its way. It's not this, but it reminded me in its way of dreams I used to have about uh, my mom would get out of the car, 
to like put something in a mailbox or whatever, and the car would start moving, you know, and I'd be alone in the car and unable to stop it. Like it's that kind of that kind of uh, uh, of imagery. Um, These moments of grotesque powerlessness. Yeah. Um, man. And that's deep into the fourth season. Yeah. Right near the climax. It's impressive as shit. It really is. Mm. Yeah, to watch that show create just iconic entity after entity and, and seemingly never run out. I feel like it was this boon to all of horror that we're not going to fully appreciate for another 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it will probably, I don't know. I mean, everything is so locked down now. I was going to say like, it will take moving to a really popular streaming service for it to catch on. It's on shutter and shutter's great. Um, but it doesn't have the reach of, Netflix. Netflix or HBO Max, you know. Right. Um, which is too bad. Yeah, it is. It's too bad. Is it on Peacock now? I feel like it might be, since it's <laughs> NBC Universal. I'm just saying, you know. If if for some reason you have Peacock, you should go and watch. Please it. check and let us know. <laughs> Actually, you know what? If you have if you have Peacock, cancel your subscription and get Shutter. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um. Yeah, there's there's just nothing like it. And I, again, in that polygon piece, like, uh, what? How did I put it? I said it feels more of a part of the hereditary Get Out. It follows the witch, the Babadook, under the skin cinematic continuum than it does like any other horror show that was, you know, with certain. With certain exceptions, like you have to talk about it. If you're going to talk about what the show is like in in reference to other TV shows, you do have to reach back to The Prisoner mm-hmm. or Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone or Twin Peaks, right? Like this, the Stone classics, you know? Yeah, because that's that's where it's pulling from, and that's what it successfully emulates and builds on, right? You know, each of these seasons feels like a separate nightmare. Hmm. I, I even um, the guy who plays Mike Painter in the first season, whose name escapes me at the moment, his affect for the entire season is like a sleepwalker. Yeah, he's speaking That's- so softly; he's not making a lot of eye contact. His body language is sort of neutral and and cowed. It's Paul Schneider is the, is that's the actor's it, that's name. It. Yeah. He's, he's tremendous. He's doing an incredible job there. Yeah, absolutely. And and so understated. That's a, that's that, a great cast in season one. Mm-hmm. And Fiona Shaw is really amazing. And that's true over and over again. Like, I feel like, see, like season three... Um, the two women who play the sisters, Olivia Lucardi and Holland Roden are fucking dynamite. Yeah. They're incredible. And and again, this is a show that I think could have gotten away with the half-assing the acting, you know, because the imagery is so strong. And that often is a trade-off that, that is made. 
Um, which, which is why I think, you know, when you, when you are confronted with like a truly great performance in a horror movie, it really stands out, you know, like yeah. when you get a Jason Miller in the exorcist, like you're like, Oh wow. Yeah. Cause you don't need it. You didn't need it. You didn't need it, but <laughs> right. you got it anyway. Because vomiting Linda Blair will carry the movie. Right. Right. Um, but you know, you have an alcoholic playwright playing a, a priest who lost his faith and it's fucking brilliant, you know? And I, I think that, um, channel zero has the, 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 the humans to live, to hold their own against the monsters. Yeah. Which is no guarantee going no, into it. Not. Yeah. They, yeah. they command the screen just, just as much and mm. in unique ways. What do you think? Should we wrap it up there? Why not? Let's do it. So this has been Cut to Black, a podcast about the ways in which we experience television. I've been Gretchen Felker-Martin. I've been Sean T. Collins. And we'll continue being ourselves after the credits roll. You can find our podcast wherever podcasts are hosted. You could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Mm. Um, And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.